a new song. It's new to us, Redemption. Pretty new in the grand scheme of worship songs that have been released. Uh, our kids can head back to be with our team in Transformation Station there. They're already on their way. They know the drill. And uh, they'll take the elevator today, by the way, team, just in case you didn't catch that. And um, I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's life-giving and indestructible word to the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning. So if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, it's uh, page 887. And uh, just let me uh, give a quick uh, invitation. If you are, if you are new uh, to Redemption Hill, uh, my name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, and if you're not so new, my name is still Tanner Turley, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, everyone's laughing because they never see me wear glasses. So I thought I should reintroduce myself uh, today. So I uh, hope you liked them. Um, it took Marsha a couple of days, you know. It's like, I like your glasses. So. There we go. That's my wife. Um, so, yeah, if you are new or new-ish, um, we would love for you to stick around after uh, the service concludes. We're going to transition downstairs to what we call Next. And Next is just a, a simple, uh, quick meeting, light lunch. Uh, we'll get started about 10 after, and, um, and then we'll be out of there by 1, we promise. But it's just a great way to learn a little more about the church, mission, vision, as well as here's some ways that you can you know, consider getting involved. So, again, no pressure. Uh, we we still love you. We'll still give you a free lunch, even if you never come back, all right? But, uh, but we would love for you to come and check that out. Well, um, if I were to ask you uh, who Jesus is, uh, how would you describe him? What qualities would, would come to your mind in terms of what he possesses? What would you say was the primary mission of Christ? You see, I've discovered in my personal journey as well as my years of being a pastor that a lot of times we we come to Jesus, uh, but we come to him in such a way that that our lenses are, are distorted by our own experiences and preferences. So, so, for example, um, some people will treat Jesus as if he is like CEO Jesus, okay? Come to the Bible in order to kind of see, he was a great leader. I mean, it's hard to argue with that statement. Jesus was a great leader. I mean, you know, about two about billion people on the planet, roughly, you know, kind of still follow him. Uh, so he was a decent leader, kind of knew how to organize things and, and, and delegate and, and plan. And so we can kind of come to Jesus, like Jesus CEO, Jesus, like maybe I'll follow him. Uh, what, what about hippie Jesus? Like, everything's cool, man. And, and, and with that, you know, kind of the, the hidden assumption is like, you can do whatever you want to do because Jesus is all love and peace signs and no expectations with hippie Jesus. What about, what about hipster Jesus? Now, I know I got the cool new glasses, so it's kind of like I hesitate to throw this in the sermon, but, you know, like, like hipster Jesus is, we, like, we have to do everything super cool in order to make like, Christianity more palatable to people who don't quite get it. So we kind of come to the Gospels like, okay, let's find, you know, hipster Jesus. What about Guru Jesus? Guru Jesus, like, we just come to him for advice. 
need wisdom, go to Jesus. So need, need some guidance, go to, go to find a saying that you can kind of attach to your life. Um, what about get rich Jesus? This is, this is the Jesus of a lot of churches. Um, not this one, okay? Um, but a, lo- a lot of churches that would just say, you know what, Jesus never wants you to, you know, like, of course, um, you know, Jesus w- would never have you suffer, okay? I'm not saying God never takes delight in suffering. He does not want us to suffer. And yet there is suffering in our broken world. Right. So um, so some people would say, you know what, Um, if if you just, you know, kind of give a few dollars, man, God is going to bless you with thousands of dollars because get rich. Jesus wants everyone to be rich and wealthy and healthy all the days of their life. And just, you know, the, the big problem with that is kind of you get to the ends of the gospel and, you know, Jesus is crucified. So that one doesn't seem uh, to, to measure up. And, and then just, you know, here's, here's just one another one. How about Gumby Jesus? You remember Gumby, the little cartoon, you know, guy? You can, like, you can just stretch, like, any way you want him. You can put his arm, you know, like, behind his, you know, back and kind of just put his leg, you know. It's just like we can just kind of adapt Jesus and make him so flexible that he can fit into any one of our causes. And so we need to be careful I even need to be careful that when we, we come to Jesus, like the, the, the real one, the true one, the one that's revealed in the scriptures, that, that we do not allow our personal um, experiences and preferences and self-centered desires to modify who Jesus really is. Jesus is who he is, and we can't change him. We can't manipulate him. We cannot control him. And so our goal should be to allow him to define himself. And what we're going to see in this, this, this passage this morning is that uh, when, when you come to the Gospels, um, now it's really explicit here, okay, it's really explicit, but, but, but the, whole, the whole deal, all right, it, it, when we come to the Gospels, we're coming to a man on fire. We are coming to a man whose life was marked by passion and purpose and zeal. So much so that, that as you will see in this story, sometimes we're even kind of startled. We're kind of taken back that, that Jesus would say the things that he says and that he would do the kind of things that he does. And yet I hope that we will accept Jesus for who he really is and we will appreciate and want to reflect who he is in our lives. Jesus was zealous for God's glory. And this is what we see in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. So if you would read along with me as I read these verses for us. It says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, the only way you could go from Galilee, by the way, because Jerusalem was elevated higher than Galilee. So Jesus and his disciples went up to Jerusalem. And then verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
his disciples remembered that it was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroyed this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So let me just catch us up to speed on what's happening here in our story. Jesus and his disciples uh, traveled up to Jerusalem. Verse 13 tells us for Passover. Okay, the, 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 the Jewish people were a people um, who loved to celebrate. They loved festivals. They would uh, launch these festival celebrations as points of remembrance to recall to mind the great things that God had done. And so they were a people who loved to celebrate. And I just have to remind us, last week we saw Jesus at a wedding. Now this, this week we see him at a festival. And so central to Christianity and Christ is this idea of celebration. Okay, so let me just restate what I said last week. We don't invite people to that which is boring, dull, or monotonous. All right, no one wants to be on board with that. And if there is a God, surely he is not uh, boring, dull, or monotonous. And that's not what we see in Christ. In fact, in the words of G.K. Chesterton, unless, in case you just missed it last week, all right, um, this is the, itch, the achievement of Christianity. And Chesterton says this, this is the achievement of of Christianity because deep down we all long for what he calls practical romance, all right? And in practical romance, there is something that is secure and stable, okay, on the one hand, but there is also something that is strange and unpredictable. There is the idea of welcome, but there is also the idea of wonder. So, So Christ, this is who he is. This is, this is his achievement. Unlike any other, he invites us in to be uh, on sure ground, but also to a life of unanticipated joys. To know Christ is to know endless celebration. So we see Jesus at a festival. And, and what happens at this festival? Well, um, like the Jews who had pilgrimaged from, from all over that, that area of the world, um, they're coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus, like the rest, he comes into the temple to worship. And in this outer courts of the temple, where it is supposed to be a place for prayer, he sees that it is filled with herds of animals, oxen and sheep and pigeons and cages, and they're being sold. And he also finds that there are money changers there, and the money changers actually were necessary because if you, if you travel from a distant land, you have different kind of currency that you actually need to, to have exchanged so that you can make a purchase or, uh, of, of the animal set for sacrifice or to pay your temple tax. And so uh, the, the issue, okay, we need to understand this. The issue was not that there were money changers, um, you know, uh, present 
around the temple, okay, that, w- that could be expected. I mean, after all, um, most people would not bring their animals, you know, hundreds of miles to be sacrificed. Um, they, they took the more convenient route and purchased one there. Um, so, 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 you know, we could talk about that, but, but the real issue is, is the location. You see, Jesus is, is upset that the temple and even the outer courts were to be a place of prayer. But the people had turned it into a marketplace. And, and, and in the view of Christ, as we will see out of his great concern, um, he views this as a desecration of the temple, and most importantly, a desecration of God and his glory. So we see this is the issue here. This is the problem. This is what sets Jesus off. To the point that he finds uh, some rope and and braids it together, a a, a whip to, to drive out the animals out of the temple. And and to tell the the money changers to get out of there, even to the point of going and turning over their coins and turning over the tables. One scholar says this must have been a chaotic scene. (laughs) And I just posed to you, like, you don't have to be a scholar to figure that one out, all right? Like, don't you think? Animals running everywhere, tables uh, clashing to the ground, coins clinging across the stone floor. Jesus creates an uproar. And, and, and he does it for good reason, okay? What we're, what we're seeing here is, is, is um, the Jesus that can get angry, but he can do so in a, what we would call a righteous or holy kind of way. You see, there is a kind of love that is so holy and so pure that it can move us to a holy kind of anger. So Jesus, even though he is angry here, visibly, zealously angry at what's happening here, he is not uncontrolled. This is calculated moves on the part of Jesus to make a statement to the practices that are happening there. And so again, I just want to encourage us. This is the biblical Jesus. Jesus is willing to sit down at a table with the worst of the worst, the, the ones that society would have, have cast off months and years ago. Jesus was, in the words of Luke chapter 7, a friend of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves. He hung out with these kind of people because he would say that it's not the healthy who need a, the sick, uh, uh, a physician, but the sick, right? So he'll sit down at the table with ungodly who's not in that crowd, ungodly people, but he'll also turn over tables when he needs to. He'll welcome people in, but he will also, if he needs to, he will drive them out. Jesus would do this because, as we see in verse 17, which I believe is such a key verse for understanding the story, um, it says that zeal for his house, the Father's house, God's house, had consumed him. He was consumed 
with a passion, with a zeal for who God is, that it moved him to say the things that he said and act in this kind of way. And so what I want to do is this. I want to give us three encouragements from the words of Christ that I I hope will help us to become a people who are zealous for God's glory, just as Jesus is zealous for God's glory. Okay, so so number one, how about this? Just for the first encouragement, be zealous. Be zealous. Two words, surely you can remember that. You can write it down if you need the help, all right? But, but, but when it comes to the things of God, let me, just, let me just pause and ask you, would you consider yourself to be, when it comes to the things of God, this is what was driving Jesus, would you consider yourself to be a, passive, a passionate person or a passive person? Do you, do you consider yourself to be a, a person of zeal or a person of indifference? Are you someone who is full of life or are you on the further end of the spectrum of being more life, lifeless when it comes to the things of God? I, I, want, I want to say, and, and just please, please weigh this out, okay? I believe that people who know Christ should be the most passionate people on the planet. Like, hands down. We, we, I believe, if this story is true, like all these things that we sing about, like Jesus really rose from the dead. I mean, I'm just looking back at the history, and I'm not seeing anyone else making that claim. I'm not seeing anyone who's accomplished that. And all the implications, we don't have time to get into the implications of resurrection, the hope, the life, the death of death, and all of that. Like, now, because of that, we get in on that, we should be the most passionate people on the planet. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 11, he says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And we can just see this all throughout the scriptures. Okay, Psalm 27, one thing asked, this is what I seek, to gaze upon the beauty of like one thing, this is what I'm after. Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul is thirsting for you. My flesh is fainting for you, man. I'm falling apart without you. God, Acts 20, 28, Paul says, I don't count my life worth anything of any value at all. If only I might finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. Philippians 3, he'll say uh, something as as extreme as this. Like, in comparison to knowing Christ, everything else is trash. That's that's really what he says. I'm not like, this isn't preacher talk. I'm not trying to make a point. All right, that's what Paul, that was Paul's point. All throughout the scriptures, we see these kind of statements from people who had seen a vision of God. They were not passive. They were passionate. And so what, is, what does zeal look like? If, if, if we are to be zealous, what does zeal look like? And I just came up with a few descriptors. Okay, we come up with more than this, all right? But, 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 but here are a few, all right? Number one, zeal ignites intense focus. Zeal ignites intense focus. Focus. The, the zealous person, we saw in Psalm 27, right? Um, they have a strange kind of single-mindedness about them. Their life is marked by seriousness and urgency. 
they would say, they would agree, like, there are a lot of good things in life. A lot of good things. But nothing compares with this. This is what I'm after. This is what I'm pursuing. Zeal is not easily distracted. Which is so good because, like, we live in a world of distraction. (laughs) A world of it. And so when you're zealous, when it's just like one thing, then it helps us calibrate our lives, our decisions, our, our, our plans. It helps us to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. So zeal ignites intense focus. Number two, zeal equips us with great energy. Zeal presses on. Zeal keeps going. Zeal has great determination. It is resolute and it is relentless. When others get tired and bow out of the race, the zealous keep on running. Zeal gives us intense focus. It equips us with great energy. And number three, I like this one. Zeal produces abundant enthusiasm. So there is an excitement. There is something to be enjoyed about something that you are passionate for. Now, I learned this word enthusiasm when I was like four or five years old. And it's not because, you know, I was reading my dictionary, right? It was because my father is a high school basketball coach, and this was his mantra, okay? Enthusiasm makes the difference. It was, it was his, his, his statement that he loved so much that that he actually like put it on the basketball shorts, like the practice shorts of his team. He just put it on there. It was like over top of a basketball. You know what I'm saying? Like enthusiasm makes the difference. It was in the locker room. It was on their shorts. It was on, you know, the, 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 the so, so I learned what enthusiasm meant, not because I asked my dad so much, like, hey, what does that mean? But because I saw it in his life. My dad's super successful, all right? And, and enthusiasm doesn't always lead to success, but just to brag on my dad, right? You can brag on other people, right? My dad has over 600 wins in the state of Kentucky. He's like top 12 all time, you know, in the state. And, uh, but, but, but that's beside the point. What is the point is this, that, that he didn't have to define enthusiasm because I saw it in his life. No one had to talk my dad into getting excited about basketball, you know what I'm saying? This guy like woke up and he's like intense because he can't wait to get to practice and can't wait to get to the game. He can't wait to work with his players and be a leader at that level. Zeal produces abundant enthusiasm. And then number four, zeal moves us to believe what few will believe and to attempt what few will attempt. So, so the zealous person always wants more. Never content, never totally satisfied. Always striving, always seeking to improve. Zeal will move a person. One of our favorite statements at Redemption Hill, to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Zeal can, in the absolute best sense of the the, the term zeal can consume a person. It can consume them. It can just cause us to be so wrapped up in the thing that we desire and that we're passionate about, that we're pursuing, that, that little else matters. But here's the irony in how, how the, the John is telling the story. 
Jesus was consumed in this kind of way for the Father's glory, but it is actually a passion and a zeal that would ultimately consume him, consume his life. It would take his life. His, his passion, follow me here, his passion would lead to his passion. Let me, let me say that another way. His passion would lead to his passion of suffering. When we talk about the, the suffering of Christ and him going to the cross, we can call that the passion. Zeal for God's glory consumed Christ. And let me just say this. Uh, um, I think we want to be careful here because passion does not look the same in, in every person. So I used to like, I saw what my dad was like and I was kind of looking in the mirror and seeing like what I'm passionate about. And then I would look around and be like, man, these people aren't very passionate. Man, what's wrong with these people? You know, I just kind of started having this attitude, all right? And, and, and then what God taught me over time is that, you know, like the people that I didn't think were, were very passionate, when I started to rub shoulders with them, when I started to hang out with them, let's even talk spiritually, okay? Um, when I started to hear the way that they prayed, and when I, when I started to, to see the things that they were attempting for God, I had to reevaluate my assessment. I mean, these, these are passionate people. Okay? So, so, so passion and zeal doesn't always mean like a bunch of chest bumps and shoulder bumps and high fives. Right? Like, it can mean that, right? And it probably should mean that at times. Um, but, but you get the point, right? I mean, zeal is about intense focus. It is about energy for God, enthusiasm, being willing to believe and to do what few would do. And so after all of that assessment of zeal, just in comparison to your other loves, how, how zealous are you for Christ? How passionate are you for the things of God. You see, G- Jesus was driven by a great desire to protect the, the fame and the name and the glory of his Father. And that's what we see next, okay? Not only should we be zealous, not only just zealous for, 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 for no good reason, um, we should be zealous for pure worship to the Father's glory. Zealous for pure worship to the Father's glory. The heart of the issue is this. Jesus goes into the temple and he was bothered. He was provoked by what he saw happening there because the people were treating the glory of God with a sense of, of levity, of a sense of lightness. And so um, he, he's moved to action. And, and again, this is, this is a, a righteous kind of anger. This is a righteous kind of zeal, right? I know a lot of times when we get angry, and, and, and I know some of us are going to be even tempted this week, all right? We're going to like get angry, and we're going to say, like, well, Jesus got angry. It's okay for me to get angry. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, don't lie. I see you smiling. All right. So, so here, here's, here's the point, all right? Jesus was, was holy or righteous or pure in his anger because, and how do we know that? It's because his concern was, was not for himself. His concern was for someone else, namely God the Father. He was not worried about retaliation or vindicating his own name. His concern was for vindicating the name of his father. So I would just just encourage you to test your motives when you get angry, to pause, to step back. Because a lot of times when I get angry, it's not because I'm concerned uh, for, for God's glory. It's because of some of my own desires, like James 4 talks about, are not being met. They're not being satisfied. And, and I'm angry for me, not for him. 
But Jesus, we see that he was, he was uh, zealous for, for glory. He, he possessed a deep desire for pure worship. And, and again, just remember that the issue here is not the fact that they were selling oxen and, and sheep and pigeons and that there were money changers present. That the issue is that uh, it was happening in the place where there should have been prayer. So D.A. Carson uh, says it like this. He says, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. And so what Jesus is, is trying to do is he's trying to remove obstacles to the worship of the people who, who are gathering. And, and, and let, me just, let me just highlight this, okay? Uh, this, this outer court was the place for the Gentiles, non-Jews. So, so um, Jesus' uh, heart for all people is, is even highlighted here because he's, he's, he's addressing what's happening in the outer courts. But as we think about Jesus removing obstacles to our worship, let me just ask how we're removing obstacles to our own worship. I mean, for many of us, and, and hopefully if you're not there yet, maybe you'll, you'll move to this place. Like, worship is something we highly value. To, to come here on a, like, worship is, let me be clear, like, every day is worship. We worship Jesus because he's changed us um, every day of the week. But, but it's on Sunday that we come together to worship him, to turn our attention to him, to give him our devotion, to, to sing songs of praise, to pray together, to encourage one another, to hear from God's word, to respond to God's word. This is all, these are all acts of worship, to give of what God has entrusted to us, all acts of worship. And so you know, if, if you've been in Christ very long, I don't have to explain to you that, that sometimes there are barriers to our worship, and most of the time, the issue is not what's happening around us, it's what's happening within us. And so let me give you two barriers that I, I want us to think about together as a church, right? The first kind of barrier is, is the spiritual barrier in our own lives. Now, Jesus is full of love. Jesus is full of grace. We are not perfect people. And yet, we have things in our life that creep up that don't look like Christ. The Bible calls that, no one likes this word anymore, but the Bible calls that sin. Sin is missing the mark. It's, it's, not, it's not following through on, on what God wants for us. To, to be um, a little more graphic and explicit and weighty with it, as R.C. Sproul says, a sin is cosmic treason. It's a big deal because God is a big God. And he, he wants what's best for us. So when we deviate from God's plan, we get junk in our heart, and that junk needs to be dealt with. So this is true. Like, if you, were, if you would say, I'm not yet a Christian, I'm just learning about Jesus, then that I would encourage you, you, you have junk in your heart just like I have junk in my heart. And that's why Jesus died. He died for the junk. He died for the sin. He died for that which separates us from God, that we might not have to be separated from God, but can be brought in, welcomed in to this, to this reign of grace and celebration that he offers. So if that's you, I want to invite you to receive Christ today. But, but, but if you are in Christ, we still have to 
daily, weekly deal with the junk, deal with the sin that's in our life. And if, and if we're kind of holding on to pieces of our life that we know are not like Christ, then that is going to create an obstacle in our worship. The joy that we should experience when we come and we get together with family, right? Like every Sunday is a family reunion at Redemption Hill. Like we should love seeing one another and we should love praising God. We should really love it. Doesn't mean that some weeks aren't hard. Doesn't mean that I mean John's encouragement at the beginning today that, that, that Jesus is this rock and when there's unstable things going on in our life, like we need him. Okay, so it doesn't mean, but, but the point here is that, 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 that we should want this kind of pure experience in worship. Because we're walking with God daily, and when we blow it, and when we sin against him, we're confessing that, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me for that. Help me to move on in the ways that you want me to. So the first barrier is a spiritual barrier. The second barrier is a physical barrier. And we could say a lot more about all of this, right? But, but let me just throw like a physical kind of logistical barrier, okay? Like I, I, I know, and, and again, I, I struggle too. I struggle too even as a pastor. Like getting, getting to bed on at a good, good hour on Saturday night, waking up at a decent hour on Sunday morning so that, so that your heart is prepared, Right? So that you're ready to come in and focus on Christ. Um, so, so, um, so maybe you need to modify your game plan a little bit. Just to have a, a more diligent focus and devotion to God as you come in to worship. It, if, you, if you make just a few changes, by the way, like you might actually get here at 1027. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, not, I'm not hating. I'm just saying, you know, just saying. Not hating, just saying. So Jesus wants to clear away these barriers. He wants to, to pursue pure worship, and he's doing this because he's zealous for the Father's glory. See, the temple was a place for God to be known and a God and God to be revealed. Okay, it was a place for his glory to be on display. So you could just go back and you can read Exodus at the end of Exodus, and you can see that the tabernacle, which was the precursor, was like a mobile tent that was the precursor to the temple, all right, where the, the glory of God and the presence of God, where they came to worship and offer these sacrifices. Great detail went into the tabernacle. First Kings 6 through 8, great detail. It was very lavish and beautiful and glorious went into the building of the temple, the first temple in 1 Kings 6 through 8. And all of it was meant to, to display how beautiful and how intricate and how holy God truly is. The psalmist would put it like this, Psalm 84 verse 10, for a day in your courts, a day in the temple courts, is better than a thousand days elsewhere. That's how they viewed the temple. That's how they viewed worship. I would rather be here for one day than a thousand days somewhere else. And then he goes on to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper. Just like hold the door open for people coming in and out. I would rather do that, not even have a place to lay my head, than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. This is the kind of reverence that that the people held for the temple because the temple was the place where God was to be known and to be made known. And so Jesus sees all of this activity as a desecration of his father's glory and the effect on the disciples. Just consider this. The effect on the disciples as they see this, this, this uh, action of Jesus, it, it must have startled them too. Like it startles us when we read it for the first time. Um, but, but then they remembered and I don't know, we can't tell if this was like on the spot the day it happened or if this was after Jesus died and rose again. But, but the, whatever point it says that they remembered the words of, 
Psalm 69, verse 9, that says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for the Father's house will consume me. And and these are messianic pointers. This was the expectation of the the Jewish people, that the Messiah would make, make things right in the temple and actually usher in a better temple that was to come. And that's where we're going here as we move forward. Okay, so, so number one, be zealous. Number two, be zealous for pure worship to the Father's glory. But then, but then three, you ask like, okay, that's, that's the what. What about the how, Tanner? Like, how can we do this? And this is a beautiful, uh, I think, response into that question. Um, and that, here it is. Be zealous for the Father's glory by seeing the glory of Christ's resurrection. Be zealous for glory by seeing that which is glorious. Let me show you uh, how this shows up in our passage. Um, Look back at verse 18, and and you can imagine the actions of Christ are going to raise some questions. So it says, the Jews said to him, okay, they're coming to him, and they say, Jesus, um, what sign um, do you show us for doing these things? So I can't really fault the Jewish leaders here, right? Like if someone comes into my house this week and starts turning over furniture, I'm probably going to be like, well, what's up, man? Like what are, what are you doing here? By what authority do you have to act like this? And so Jesus answers them in kind of the mysterious and we could call it cryptic kind of way where he doesn't give them a straight answer, but he gives them a true answer. And he says this, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it, raise it up. Okay, so, so here's the point. Uh, they want a sign. They, they want some kind of validation. Okay, Jews demand signs is what 1 Corinthians 1 says. Okay, so, so they're looking for validity. They're looking for a reason to uh, agree that this is okay. And so Jesus says, here's, here's going to be the sign, all right, that I'm going to show that this is, this is uh, good business that I'm, that I'm taking care of here. Um, you destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Now, now, there's a little misinterpretation of Jesus' statement. Look in verse 20. It says that they responded, it has taken 46 years to build this beautiful temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You see, they, they, they think that Jesus is speaking of, of stones and mortar, of, of gold and fabric and bronze. They misinterpret what he's saying. They, they, and how could we expect them to not? I mean, who's ever speaking like this? You destroyed this temple, I'll, ra- I'll raise it up in three days. Just three, that's all I need. The true interpretation is found in verse 21. John writes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus here, he, he, this is the first time that he explicitly predicts his death. The temple that he's referring to is the temple of his own body. He says, you can destroy this, this temple, this, this presence of God in your midst. You can destroy me, but, but here's what's going to happen. In three days, I will make sure that my life is back, back from the dead. So you have, you have uh, 
the first explicit mention, not the first like allusion to the death of Christ because John one twenty nine, behold the Lamb of God. John one thirty six, I believe, behold the Lamb of God. Uh, John 2, verse 4 or 5, um, my hour has not yet come. Okay, so like all of these allusions, but now Jesus is explicitly saying, hey, I am going to die. But he is also saying, he's also saying, I am going to rise. I am going to live. This is the first mention of resurrection. And you say like, well, John... This is a huge spoiler here, you know what I'm saying? Like chapter two, we already know the end of the story. Why would he do this? Well, for a couple reasons. Um, One, probably his readers were probably familiar with the story of Jesus, okay? The time that he was writing this, most people were probably familiar with the stories as portrayed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most everyone believes John was the last gospel written, okay? So, so not only is it because they probably already had an awareness or a knowledge of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also, don't miss this, also he is wanting to set a tone for the rest of the gospel that's saying this is who Jesus is. He is the one who will die, and he is the one who will rise again. And now it's through this lens that we read the rest of John's gospel. So what I love about what Jesus does here is that, that, that he, he sees through the glory of the temple. All right? He, 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 sees, he sees through the glory of the temple to the glory that the people were to behold as they entered the temple and as they prayed in the temple and as they worshiped at the temple, namely the glory of the Father. And now he's talking about his own glory. And I want to pose to you, this is why point three is stated the way that it is. Be zealous for the, floor, the Father's glory by seeing the glory of Christ and his resurrection. Um, he, he, here's what we have to understand. Um, when, when we see something that is glorious, it will move us to want to pursue that and live differently. So we become zealous for glory by glory. You got that? You might want to write that down, okay? We become zealous for glory by glory, because of glory, motivated by the glory that we see. So my my favorite sentence outside of the Bible is is found in this book. uh, It's called Heaven Taken by Storm by Thomas Watson, 17th century pastor. Five words in that book just absolutely rocked me one night, like woke me up, and I just kept praying on it and thinking about it. Okay, this this is what Watson said. He says, glory renders us intensely zealous. Glory renders us intensely zealous. And this is his point. When we see something that is so captivating, so beautiful, so magnificent, that we can't help but be changed by it, we can't help but talk about it, we can't help but live for it, we can't help but want more of it. And so we will not, listen, 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 here's, here's, here's the deal, all right? You will not live for glory if you don't see glory. You will not Live for the glory of God unless you behold the glory of God. 
And there's all kinds of glory right here in this passage. Okay, let me give you two truths that we see so clearly, right? Number one, Jesus is glorious because he is the true and greater temple, okay? There is this progression all throughout the Bible where you have, um, you know, the tabernacles I mentioned in Exodus that gives way to the temple in First Kings. And then that first temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. And then you have the second temple that's constructed that, that then was, you know, uh, renovated by Herod in the days of just before Christ. But then that temple was also destroyed in AD 70. And so what, what, what's going on here is that there is a progression of glory uh, from the tabernacle to the temple to the second temple that's pushing us to a greater glory. And what do we see in John 1.14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt is tabernacled. The, I like this. The, the tabernacle was in the temple, right? The, the, the presence of God. God himself was, had now arrived in the person of Christ. So, so the trajectory of the Bible is that Jesus is the true and greater temple. He, he is the glory of God made known, the presence of God right there on display. And Revelation sums it up at the end of, of the Bible. Revelation uh, chapter 21, verses 22 and 3 say this. Look at this. This is where it's all going, by the way, right? And I can't wait to get there. Um, and I saw no temple in the city. No temple in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not going to be a temple there. And, and why is that? Um, well, here's why. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. If you, if you want to see something glorious, look to Jesus. He is the true and better temple. He is the very presence of God. He is the one who reveals the glory of God to us. And then number two, Jesus is glorious because he brings the death of death in his resurrection. No one really wants to die. I don't know how, how often you think about your life. I don't know how often you think about the span of your life. But unless Christ returns, we believe Christ is going to return. So unless that happens before each of us kind of get to that, 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 that end, most, for most people it's going to be 70, 80. For some of us it's going to be shorter than that. And so none of us, none of us in, in many respects like looks forward to death apart from grace. And so, so, so we need to wrestle with our mortality. And yet because of Jesus, we don't have to fear death. The thing that probably most people fear the most, we don't have to fear it at all because Jesus has defeated death with his death and his resurrection. He is indestructible. In the words of Hebrews 7, 16, it says that Jesus uh, has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement uh, concerning body, bodily descent, but here, here's what Jesus' priesthood stands on. His priesthood stands on the power of an indestructible life. That's why this priesthood goes on forever. So good. So good. So, so I hope you're saying I want in on that. I hope you're saying... 
I want to behold the glory of Christ. I want to know the glory of Christ. I want to live for the glory of Christ. If, if you're not yet a Christian, if, and a Christian is someone who sees the glory of Christ, and they're like, man, I'm all in for that. I'm, I'm leaving behind my, my selfish and sinful ways, and I'm going to ask God to change me, forgive me of all that, that wrong and mess and junk in my life, and, and, and I'm going to get on board by trusting in what he did. He lived the life that I could never live. He died the death that I should have died. And he rose again in my place that by his resurrection, I might also have life now and forever. And so if you, if you need to receive Jesus for who he is, as the Messiah, as, as the, the son of God who came to give us life, I don't want to invite you that today. Like, why wait why put it off? Why, why wait for a better time? There's no better time if we really see it, if we really see who he is. So, so even the, the worship guide that we give out every week, it, on the back it has ways that you can respond. I just encourage you, even if you just have a prayer request, but, but especially if you would say, like, I have more questions about Jesus. That these claims that you're making are radical. The claims that Jesus made were radical, and, and I really want to get to the bottom of it. I really want to see if I believe like you believe. Let us know that. We want to help you. We're not here to pressure you. We're here to help you. When we see the glory of Christ, we are moved to live with great zeal for his glory. So, so thinking about Watson's statement, glory renders us intensely zealous. Here are just a few thoughts. When my passion and zeal grows weak, it's because I'm, I'm failing to behold the glory of Christ. When you see how glorious Jesus is, it is, it is next to impossible to settle for mediocrity. When you see how glorious Christ is, as the one who lived perfectly, died, and rose again, and you really see him for who he is, it is next to impossible to say, I'm not willing to give up everything for him. I'll do a lot of things, but I won't do that. I'll go a lot of places, but I won't go there. We can't, we can't come to that conclusion when we see him for who he is. We cannot look at the cross of Christ and how he forgave us of all of our wrongdoing and then look to a brother or sister around us or, or a coworker or a friend and, 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 and say, you know what, I'm not willing to forgive you. Like, we just can't do that. We can't behold his glory and, and, and then not live zealously for his glory. The glory of Christ saves us from lethargy and laziness and, and being uninterested, and, and uninterested in the things of God. So the invitation this week is to come and see and believe and then live intensely zealous for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise that you are not a God who is easy to define. 
God, we give you praise that there is none like you. There is none so high and exalted. There is none so glorious. There is, there is no God who would say, destroy me, and, and, and you'll find that you can't destroy me. So God, we give you praise today. We give you thanks today. Lord, we want to, to behold you more clearly that we might live for you more zealously. God, we are, we are often passive. We are often distracted. We are often gripped by a thousand other decent things, good things. But Lord, you call us to be consumed, driven by, zealously uh, passionate for you who are the best. So God, move us to that place. Move us to that place where we live intensely zealous for your glory. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.